Hello, this is Pearls on Tuesday, where we aim to create and celebrate the beauty of ordinary moments in extraordinary ways. This is part three of a reading from A Very Virginia Christmas by Wilford Kale. I will begin by sharing the inside cover. Just about everyone has a special memory of Christmas and the holiday season. It may involve an unexpected gift, a family tradition, or a special event. Virginians have been making these memories for more than 400 years. In this volume, noted Virginia writer Wilford Kale has collected some of the best Virginia Christmas memories and traditions. In wartime and peace, and from times of need to those of feasting, Virginians have always found ways to celebrate the holidays. You will discover what Christmas was like for Captain John Smith, George Washington, or Booker T. Washington. Share memories of Virginia Christmases from the Eastern Shore and South Side to the Shenandoah and the mountains of Appalachia. Learn of Virginia's first Christmas tree and William and Mary's Yule Log. Remember the magic of Miller and Rhodes' legendary Santa and the Richmond Christmas pageant. As you read, you'll share family feasts, discover the origins of some of Virginia's favorite experiences, and enjoy the variety of celebrations over the centuries. I live in Southside, Virginia, and I enjoy taking this book out and reading it each holiday season, and I hope you will too. Today's story by Booker T. Washington is called Plantation Christmas Days. In Virginia, where I was born, Christmas lasts not one day, but a week, sometimes longer. At least that is the way it was in the old slave days. Looking back to those days when Christmas for me was a much more momentous event than it is now, it seems to me that there was a certain charm about that Virginia Christmas time, a peculiar fragrance in the atmosphere, a something which I cannot define and which does not exist elsewhere in the same degree where it has been my privilege to spend the Christmas season. In the first place, more is made of the Christmas season in Virginia, or used to be, than in most other states. Furthermore, at the time to which I refer, people lived more in the country than they do now, and the country, rather than the city, is the place for one to get wholesome enjoyment out of the Christmas season. There is nothing in a crowded life that can approach the happiness and general good feel which one may have in the country, especially when the snow is upon the ground, the trees are glittering with icicles, and the Christmas odors are in the air. Christmas was the great event of the whole year to the slaves throughout the South and in Virginia during the days of slavery. The colored people used to begin getting ready for Christmas weeks beforehand. It was the season when, in many cases, the slaves who had been hired out to other masters 
came home to visit their families. Perhaps the husband had been away from his wife for 12 months. He was permitted on Christmas to come home. Perhaps children had been hired out in another part of the state or another part of the country, away from their mothers for six to 12 months. They were permitted to come home at Christmas. It was made known during these holidays which slaves were to remain on the home plantation, which ones were to be hired out to the neighboring farmers, and which ones were to be sold. It was an important period to the slaves in many ways, but the feelings of joy at the reunion of the family prevailed above all others. There were a number of festivities that led up to Christmas and prepared for it. One of them was the corn shucking. No one who has not actually experienced an old-fashioned corn shucking in Virginia can understand exactly what I mean. These corn shucking bees, or whatever they may be called, took place during the last of November or the first half of December. As I have said, they were a prelude to the festivities of the Christmas season. Usually, they were held upon one of the larger and wealthier plantations in the neighborhood. After all the corn had been gathered, thousands of bushels sometimes, it would be piled up in the shape of a mound, often to the height of 50 or 60 feet. Invitations would be sent around by the master himself to the neighboring planters, inviting their slaves on a certain night to attend the corn shucking. In response to these invitations, as many as one or two hundred men, women, and children would come together. When all were assembled around the pile of corn, some one individual who had already gained a reputation as a leader in singing would climb on top of the mound and begin at once in clear, loud tones a solo a song of the corn-shucking season, a kind of singing which, I'm sorry to say, has very largely passed from memory and practice. After leading off in this way, in clear, distinct tones, the chorus at the base of the mound would join in, some hundred voices strong. The words, which were largely improvised, were very simple and suited to the occasion, and more often than not, they had the flavor of the camp meeting rather than any more secular proceeding. Such singing I have never heard on any other occasion. There was something wild and weird about that music, such as will never be heard again in America. While the singing was going on, hundreds of hands were busily engaged in shucking corn. The corn shucking and the music would continue perhaps until 10 o'clock at night. The music made the work light and pleasant. In a very short time, almost before anyone realized it, hundreds of bushels of corn had been shucked. About that time, a break would come. Everybody would be invited to a groove or some convenient place for supper, which was served in a sumptuous manner. After an hour, perhaps, spent around the table, the corn shucking with more music was begun again and continued until late into the night, often into the early hours of the morning. 
This was one of the incidents which usually preceded a Virginia Christmas time. There is another which I still vividly remember. It was at this season that the year's crop of hogs was killed and the meat for the ensuing year was cured and stored away in the smokehouse. This came, as a rule, during the week before Christmas and was, as I recollect, one of the annual diversions of plantation life. I recall the great blazing fire flaring up in the darkness of the night and grown men and women moving about in the flickering shadows. I remember with what feelings of mingled horror and hungry anticipation I looked at the long rows of hogs hung on the fence rail, preparatory to being cut up and salted away for the year. For days after this event, every slave cabin was supplied with materials for a sumptuous feast. Such simple and commonplace diversions as these broke the monotony of plantation life. Coming directly as they did before the Christmas holidays, they served to emphasize in the minds of the slaves the joyous season they ushered in. Christmas itself, as I have said, meant a cessation of work for a week at least and often as long as 10 days. Christmas Day, the slaves would each receive something in the way of a present. The master who gave no present to his slaves was looked down upon by his fellow masters. He was considered unworthy to be classed among slaveholding aristocracy. The presents in most cases consisted of a new suit of clothes or a new pair of shoes. I remember that the first pair of shoes I ever had the opportunity of wearing came to me in the shape of a Christmas present. Later on, when the war was going on between the North and South, we felt the pinch of hard times on our plantation. I received as a Christmas present a pair of wooden shoes. That is, the uppers were composed of leather, but the soles were composed of hickory wood. In those days, the old people, as well as the young, used to hang up their stockings. The household slaves and many who worked in the field as well would hang their stockings in the master's or mistress's rooms. The children usually hung their stockings in the cabins of their parents. It has been my pleasure and privilege to receive many Christmas presents, but I do not think I ever had a present that made me feel more happy than those I received during what was, as I remember, the last Christmas I spent in slavery. I awoke at four o'clock in the morning in my mother's cabin and creeping over to the chimney, I found my stocking well filled with pieces of red candy and nearly half a dozen ginger cakes. In addition to these were the little wooden shoes with the leather tops, which I mentioned. The Christmas season ended with the cutting of the Yule log for the next Christmas. My readers will know something of the Yule log, but will scarcely understand what the custom meant in the old days in the South, unless they have been and seen the Yule log cut and have counted the days that it burned. On many of the plantations in Virginia, it was the custom for men to go out into the swamps on the last day of the Christmas season, select the biggest, 
toughest and greenest hardwood tree they could find and cut it in shape to fit the fireplace in the master's room. Afterwards, this log would be sunk into water where it would remain the entire succeeding year. On the first day of the following Christmas, it would be taken out of the water. The slaves would go into the master's room before he got out of bed on Christmas morning and with a song and other ceremonies would place this log on the fireplace of the master and would light it with fire. It was understood that the holiday season would last until this log had been burned into two parts. Of course, the main point in the selection of the Yule log was to get one that would be tough and unburnable so that it would last as many days as possible. At the burning out of the log, there was usually another ceremony of song. This meant that Christmas was over. As I look back in my memory to those Christmas days thus spent as a slave boy in Virginia, the present stiff and staid customs which prevail, especially in the larger cities, seem to me flat, stale, and unprofitable. Again, I repeat that in my opinion, the real Christmas must be spent in the country, and I cannot but feel that there is in the Virginia Christmas atmosphere a fragrance and an influence which is not to be found elsewhere. If you enjoyed this story, you may want to listen to part one, which was a story of, um, let me find the first one, yes. A Christmas Memory by Earl Hamner, writer for the Waltons TV show in the 70s, and Christmas on the South Side, speaking a great deal about Smithfield and Newport News by Park Rouse Jr. Take good care of you and yours.